Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy, and co-author of California Crack Up. He is Sokolo's California editor and writes our weekly Connecting California column, which appears in 24 newspapers around the state. He's also co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy and a professor of practice at Arizona State University. Previously, Joe covered the U.S. Justice Department for the Wall Street Journal and started out his newspaper career covering murders in Baltimore for The Sun. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Mr. Joe Matthews. Thanks very much for the introduction. Um, we'll... Uh, I want to get to the panelists, who are the real uh, stars of the show. We've got, uh, uh, this is very much a Zocalo, three different people, different expertise and experience. Um, all have come to California from different parts of the country, we were learning in the green room, um, and bringing their perspectives to bear on a, on a same question. I, we, I understand this is a very contentious question, and um, three people can't cover all the different views and intensity of the views on the subject, um, but we're, we're just going to try to have an interesting conversation and not waste too much of your time before we uh, pour the drinks and you get to talk amongst yourselves. Um, so how do we break this deadlock in the gun debate? What is the nature of this deadlock? How much of a deadlock is it? Um, uh, Jacob uh, Parakilis, who's a senior weapons researcher at Action on Armed Violence, which does stuff on, uh, on guns all over the world, uh, wrote at Zocalo yesterday that the opposing sides, and why is this so contentious in the United States? The opposing sides are simply speaking different languages. To gun rights advocates, gun ownership is a civil rights issue, a freedom on par with the freedom of speech or religion. To proponents of gun control, guns are a public health and safety issue. Arguments based on the former carry little weight with those concerned with the latter and vice versa. Relatively few nations have a right to individual arm armament specifically enumerated in their constitutions. The United States does, um, which puts advocates of gun control in the awkward position of arguing against what gun rights supporters see as an inalienable and fundamental right. That situation is ex exacerbated by the dearth of accessible, nonpartisan scientific research on the effects of guns and gun control measures upon society. Um, so, you know, a, a very short synopsis of, 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 you know, of the deadlock and why there might be a deadlock and why this is so contentious. I want to start, I'll introduce each person as I talk. I want to start in the middle here with um, Robin Thomas, who is... Uh, currently the executive director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, which was founded by attorneys and others uh, after a mass shooting at a law firm in San Francisco in 1993. It's a national nonprofit organization. Um, it's focused on providing comprehensive legal research and expertise in support of smart gun laws uh, that saves lives. Um, Robin, when you, you know, partly it's diagnosing the problem, but I think a lot of people in this room have a sense of we're deadlocked. How, what is the way out of the deadlock? Are there, for all the sort of divides, are there targets of opportunity, um, to, to use a phrase, um, you know, for where, where there's actually overlap between and, and broad consensus for action? I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think for me, since Newtown, I've seen a lot shifting on this issue just in the last year. That was not the case a year ago. Uh, whether you look at the players in the field, you now have the Newtown Action Alliance, Moms Demand Action, um, ARS, which is an organization formed by Gabrielle Giffords, the congresswoman who was shot at Tucson. Uh, Bloomberg in New York has really stepped up his, his game on this issue. So you have a lot more happening 
in this area that's helping to bring other positions to light. So, so there's different players. And then you have what's happening at the state level. So since Newtown in this country, we've had eight states pass really sweeping comprehensive gun reform packages this year, and another 13 states that have passed um, more minor legislation. And that, to me, is really a sea change for, for people who look at, at laws and, and the way things shift at the state level. It's been really significant. Now, if you're not following it, that might not be as, as obvious to you, but I've certainly seen that. And to me, it says that where there is political opportunity, legislators have a lot more courage now than they did a year ago. And now that we're seeing polls come out that say 92% of Americans support background checks, 78% uh, support banning large capacity ammunition clips. And that is a real shift too, that, that some of the support for some of this legislation had waned in the last few years. And that has really picked up since Newtown. Um, where is the opportunity? To me, I think one of the foremost places where there's opportunity is background checks. And background checks present a, a complex policy question all on their own. But even when I talk to gun rights advocates, if you can get them out of combat mode, again, it's so hard to avoid these metaphors, but um, if you can get them out of that mode, they'll admit that background checks are okay. That if that to the extent we're talking about background checks that are conducted um, relatively you know, quickly in their sense, I like waiting periods, but that's a different conversation, um, that there's not a problem with background checks that keep guns out of the hands of dangerously mentally ill or felons or domestic violence abusers. So there is common ground there. It's just hard to get them out of their little circle where they don't want to agree to any kind of gun regulation at all ever because they instantly jump into this sort of slippery slope argument. Um, what about, is the, are they, are background checks effective? I know, you know, so much of conversation, this is limited by the fact that research has been limited and, you know, federal funding for research that might, you know, lead to gun control has been banned since 1996. But what do we know of the effectiveness, the ability through background checks to, you know, your, you know, you can, and, and our ability to identify not just, you know, who's at risk, but who might be a risk? You just asked several questions there. I mean, our, our current system is riddled with loopholes. Everything from the fact that you can buy a gun from a private seller or at a gun show and you don't even have to get a background check. So if you're not going to pass one, why wouldn't you go that route to get your gun? So it's hard to see that. That being said, there's been millions of people who've tried to buy guns and go through background checks who've been turned down. So it does work. It's just a question of it's too easily avoidable now. And on the second piece, which is, you know, are we identifying people properly? In addition to the fact you don't have to get a background check if you avoid a federally licensed dealer, this, the records aren't very well kept. So mental health records are not really up to date and up to speed in most states in the system. So if you have a dangerous mental health issue and you've been even committed and you go, those records aren't going to be caught in a background check. So that is another huge loophole. And then there's what you're talking about, which is expanding even the categorization and maybe within the mental health community. One, one last question before we go to Jody, which is I was a little surprised to hear you say, see the states as an area of opportunity um, mm -hmm. because... You know, we also, you also see a lot of things happening in the states where, where you know, from your perspective, would look like not such a good thing. Guns rights laws, uh, shall issue laws, laws to limit, you know, what health professionals can say and what kind of, you know, data they can collect. I mean, in Colorado, one of the states where there was progress, you saw the recall of, you know, key legislators and, you know, specifically on the gun issue. What makes you optimistic about the states given 
where some of the states seem to be going. Well, states in this country are always a mixed bag on any issue of change. And I think if you look at other similar issues, you see the same thing. Um, I certainly see that you're making a lot of progress in states where before, even if it seemed like a place where there should be good gun regulation, you know, the NRA was so strong and there was so little voice on the other side that even in, in a lot of those states, in New York and Connecticut and Maryland and Delaware, places where you'd expect really strong gun regulation, there wasn't the political incentive that there now is. Um, I also think those provide us with case studies. The more states, California, in the last 20 years of implementing really significant gun regulation, gun violence has dropped by 56%. That's a really useful, important number to know and to have when you are talking about the efficacy of these laws. So more states and regions developing uh, comprehensive regulation gives us more data. I also think that, yes, you are we they are actually weakening gun regulation in a number of states, particularly in the South and kind of in the middle. Um, and gun injury and gun death in those states is going higher and higher uh, per 100,000. So the gun death rates in those places are continuing to go up while it goes down in a state like California where we have much more serious urban violence issues. And yet our gun violence is going down while theirs is going up. So again, I, I hate to say that it's, it, it's a... It, that information will help us to make the argument, but ultimately, um, one at a time, you have to make progress and show the impact of that progress so the people in the state eventually start to recognize the impact on their communities and families, and they'll get behind it. And it might take time. I mean, a lot of these issues, um, you can't be in it for the short fix. You've got to understand it's a long-haul solution. But, you know, I, I think it can be done, and it is being done in places where the NRA doesn't have the same power. Yeah. Well, um, let me, with that, I'll turn to uh, scholars in it for the long haul. Uh, Jody David Armour is the Crocker Professor of Law at USC. Uh, has been on the faculty there since uh, 1985 and um, widely published, very popular lecturer. He's a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute Center on Crime. This is his book, a terrific book, 1997, still very topical and current, Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, A Hidden Cost of Being Black in America. Um, He's just completed a new book whose name I'm not sure I can fully say, but N-Word Lover um, is the title um, coming forward soon. He's a regular legal analyst. You may have seen him on television. Um, and he currently teaches a diverse array of subjects, including criminal law, torts, and stereotypes and prejudices, the role of cogn the cognitive unconscious in the rule of law. So I got a cognitive unconscious question for you. So... Um, and, and you're someone who's written a lot about self-defense in, in, in this book and in elsewhere. Um, uh, Arthur Kellerman, Dr. Arthur Kellerman, who's affiliated with this institution we are all in, um, observed recently two facts uh, that there might be some cognitive dissonance about. Um, 2013 poll, Pew Research Center, nearly half of American gun owners report that their main reason for having a gun is protection. Fewer than a third own a gun primarily for hunting. Uh, 15 years ago, same polling showed nearly half of gun owners kept firearms mainly for hunting. Only about one quarter cited protection as their most uh, important reason. Now, in those 15 years, rates of homicide, non-negligent manslaughter in the U.S. have basically been cut in half. Violent crime overall is down 48%. So why are we, to borrow a phrase, clinging to our guns for, for self-protection um, if sort of the evidence would suggest, the good work of people like Chief McDonald would suggest, we don't need them, certainly as much anymore. 
Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and um, one counterfactual to that conclusion is the Trayvon Martin case, and George Zimmerman seemed to be able to convince a jury of well-meaning people, I'm going to assume good faith, that there was a lot to be feared out here in this world. And that fear primarily takes the, the form of young, strapping black males, you know, that look like they may be from a truly disadvantaged background, if you will, or from the lower classes. Um, and we've had very similar kinds of concerns arise even around the campus of USC, and there are perennial issues that you see coming up on the news. There's a real fear of crime and violence that, as you say, isn't justified necessarily by the statistics, but doesn't make the perception any less compelling and palpable to those who feel it. And as a result, uh, when you put together this, as you point out, Joe, this um, you know, kind of real strong conviction about and support for self-defense and the right of self-defense and, and the belief that when the state can't be there to protect you, damage, you should be able to protect yourself. When there's a vacuum, your right to self-preservation reasserts itself. And when you put that right to self-preservation or self-defense together with guns, and you put that together with social stereotypes about black males in particular, you have a combustible combination. Let's just put it that way. And you're going to have the Trayvon Martin cases, you're going to have the Amadou Diallo cases, the celebrated subway vigilante case of Bernard Getz back in the day, the Sean Bell over in Pasadena, the Kendrick McDay kind of case. You're going to have those social stereotypes trigger a lot of assumptions and create a lot of false positives. You, you, uh, some of your work has is, is been in, I didn't mention this introduction, has been in intersection of law and media, in sort of the study of stereotypes. You, you produced uh, race, rap, and redemption. Um, and, and I wonder, I mean, how much... What would need to change? Is it, a, you know, is it in media or where else to, to change, to align the sort of perception on self-defense more with the reality? Yeah, well, if, if I was to look at one thing that would make the biggest change that I can imagine in the number of deaths from guns, if we're looking at the number of deaths from guns that we want to minimize, and not just, although this is very important, the number of deaths from rampage shooting, shootings, but the number of deaths from guns, a grossly disproportionate number of those are coming from the inner city, right? They're coming from black and Latino, and not just black and Latino folk, poor black and Latino folk. Um, gun violence has a, is race and has a class dimension to it. And so, you know, when we have the spike in gun violence, we, we're talking about the beginning of the crack plague, about 83, 84, and in the 30 years since, we've had the, this real spike, you know, we've, it's come down some in the last five or six years, but it's still way over what it was in 82 and 83 when the crack plague first hit, and then we have the 30 years since, you know, of the plague and its festering aftermath. To get at that, that problem, we're going to have to, number one, feel as much empathy for the kids who are killed by inner-city gun violence as we do for the Sandy Hook kids. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel sympathy for them and empathy, but where's the panic of empathy that w for all of those inner-city kids, number one? So we have to get that going, the will there. And then number two, it's not going to be just reducing clip sizes and background checks. Now we've got to go in and talk about poverty 
and racism and, and making it so that people aren't trapped behind ghetto walls which breed gun violence. So it's going to be a very different discussion than you know, the one just focused on, although it's not a very important one, um, background checks and clips. To, to that point, do you think it's the, the, the mass, you know, everyone, there's this talk saying, how come there's no, there's not bigger change after these mass shootings, someone shoots up a, you know, first grade in Connecticut. I wonder if the, the mass shootings, if you think the mass shootings work against movement on the issue in the sense that they, they redefine the issue in these, you know, this, the one crazy person, you know, doing damage and the sort of, you know, they have the way of sort of obscuring the, the, the routine carnage. I mean, it's 31,000 gun deaths in 2010, the most recent year for which we have numbers, and, you know, 18,000 of those are suicides, you know, 12,000 are, um, you know, are, are, uh, are uh, what would be, uh, were homicides. Um, is that, is that you what's know, going you put, on? You put your finger right on it, Joe. I think that's spot on, that there's a lot of ordinary, everyday violence. We have a Sandy Hook's caliber tragedy in terms of loss of lives every two weeks in the inner city. Every two weeks, we have another Sandy Hook. Right. So the, 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 the ordinariness of it is something that we aren't fully taking account of. And the recognition that that gun sitting in the house, as you mentioned, some uh, scholar earlier who pointed out that you're more likely to get shot as a family member in a domestic dispute or in some other way use that gun against somebody in the family than to ward off an assailant. Much more likely, so it's actually a health hazard. It's like having in your house a temperamental Rottweiler. Well, I had one. I don't want to, you know, step on any dog owner's toes, but a temperamental, you know, dog of some kind, you know, um, in your home that is a danger that could go off and does go off over and over in everyday homes ordinarily without all of the you know big rounds and the big clips and all of the rest so i think that is a you you put you put your finger right on something well um thank you and um i want to now bring in uh, our, our third panelist jim mcdonald who's the 25th uh, police chief of uh of the long beach police department the second largest city in la county uh, 468,000 people strong um he's been the chief there since march of 2010 um a lot of us know him previously when he served with the lapd for 29 years um, held every rank in, in the department up to chief of staff. I uh, was the second in command. Um, numerous community development awards, including the LAP, LA, earning the LAPD's highest award for bravery, the Medal of Valor. Um, he's also deeply involved um, in all sorts of organizations, youth and leadership. He's the commissioner and chair of the California Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training. Um, he's the current president of the, the LA County Police Chiefs Association. Uh, he's done a lot sort of uh, in federal issues as well. And so, my, but, uh, and we want to talk about federal, but I, I did want to start by asking you locally about, you know, how this, you know, policing a, a significantly sized city in California, very diverse city, the global port, you know, how this debate, you know, looks to you, you know, from Long Beach. Um, and also specifically, you know, what tools, um, legal or otherwise, on gun violence do you not have that you'd like to have? Well, we'll stick with the legal tools. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking at, uh, and I very much appreciate the, the conversation we're having here tonight because I, can, I think it speaks to the complexity of the issue. I think oftentimes when you have a Sandy Hook, you have a tragedy like that, we tend to focus on the instrument 
rather than on how deep this situation is, the mental health issues behind it. Uh, you've got the, the gun control issues on both sides. You've got in the policing community, you've got quite a disparity of thought on the Second Amendment rights versus gun control. Uh, what you see in the urban areas versus what you see in the more rural areas, sheriffs versus police chiefs. So there isn't one voice on policing even in this topic. Uh, but I think what we don't drill down enough on is looking at this, and we discussed a little bit earlier uh, in the green room, is the medical model issue. We've got a sickness here within this country. How do we deal with it by breaking it into component parts and fully addressing all of those component parts? You hit on it a little bit with some of the issues in our inner cities, with poverty, with abuse, with uh, dysfunction across the board. Uh, and how do we address those issues in order to be able to get at the macro picture, which is, I think, what we're looking to get at here. Uh, and I think too often we, we try to, to take a simplistic uh, approach to dealing with some of these issues when that's not the right approach to take at all. Tell me a little bit more about the, the divide, because you see in this debate people have got are parading law enforcement folks because you guys look so good in uniform. <laughs> you know, um, each side has got its, its law enforcement folks. What's the real nature of that divide? I mean, is it, you know, the, is it just the sheriffs are rural or, you know, they're politicians, we can admit it, and you police chiefs are not, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what is, the, what is the real nature of that divide and, ha and is it part of the reason we're deadlocked? Well, I think, I think there isn't one voice, as I mentioned, but I think part of it is that you hit on, on it. Uh, sheriffs are elected every four years across the country. Police chiefs are appointed in almost all jurisdictions. So that there is that piece as, as part of it, but there's also the urban, suburban, rural piece. Uh, police chiefs generally are in the more urban areas. Uh, the types of violence that we see, uh, particularly using the, the high-capacity rounds where you see a drive-by shooting and you've got a kind of a mass casualty incident, um, and many of these incidents don't get the kind of attention that a Sandy Hook or some others get where it gets the national focus because when we have a drive-by, we end up with two, three, four people that are down. I've been at scenes where we have 14 down uh, back in the late 80s. And uh, in those incidents, maybe a day in the paper to get some, some attention. Um, but really, it's, it's something where you look at, uh, it depends where it is. You hit on that piece. It's, it's geographic that if it's in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood, then it doesn't get the level of attention that it does if it was in uh, a richer neighborhood. And that's kind of the nature of what we're dealing with when we're talking about trying to bring a sense of outrage to these deaths, to many of these young kids. We, we try and create that, or at least I, I certainly do and many of my peers do, to, to get in front of the cameras when we get an opportunity to try and create that sense of outrage so we get some action on the issue. And too often, you, get, you maybe get a little 15-second blurb on the, on the evening news, and it's on to the next story about the weather or whatever. But if that same shooting happens in a different neighborhood, it's a much bigger deal, and we'll get a lot uh, different uh, response as far as resources uh, dedicated to it. And that's kind of the political reality that we work under. It's a shame. It's truly tragic, because every life is, is as important as another life. Um, so those are issues that, as I talk about the complexity of the, this issue, those are the issues we got to be honest with and talk openly about. And too often, I think, people are hesitant to come forward and, and say it for what it is, but rather talk about it in, in clouded ways where we really never get to the answer. I also wanted to ask you to expand a little bit on the mental health um, right. piece of what you talked about. I mean, you know, uh, Robin cited polling, which shows, you know, let's keep the, you know, great, very broad consensus on keeping the, the hand, right. guns out of the hands of the mentally ill, but you're, you and your, the, the, it's only 800 officers, right. not a thousand like it used yeah, to be, right. who are working for out there. 
you know, dealing with these issues, and, and these issues can be very fraught in terms right. of who's mentally ill. And what, how do you, how do you reflect on that? Well, it's not clearly defined. We have a category we call prohibited possessors: those who possess firearms who are prohibited by law from possessing them. Somebody with a domestic violence background with a conviction, somebody with mental health issues, somebody with prior felony convictions, they should not have a gun. Uh, many of the units that were charged with investigating this type of behavior have been cut due to budget cuts across the board. We're trying to put that back in my city. I know they have that. They've uh, put it back in, in Los Angeles uh, to some degree. But it's something that needs to be addressed uh, out there in every jurisdiction because the reality is the gun is the instrument. But when you look at any of these shootings, whether mass shootings, uh, particularly mass shootings where you have a uh, mass casualty event, when you look at it, we focus on the weapon, but in almost all cases, there were pre-incident indicators of problems, mental problems, with the individual that was involved in that as a suspect. And steps weren't taken to try and avoid the incident before it happened. And again, it's part of that. It's clear identification of the issue. It's bringing in appropriate resources to be able to deal with it. It's having clear enough indicators that we can articulate why we're taking the action we have. In California, we look at the 5150 of the uh, Health and Safety Code, uh, where somebody's a danger to themselves or others. There's a threshold to meet before we can take somebody, uh, basically take their freedom away and put them in custodial care where they're, where they're evaluated by a professional, a mental health professional. There's a high threshold to be able to do that because it is a very serious uh, thing. But when you look at that across the board, in many cases, doing a biopsy after the fact of one of these major incidents, Somebody who was involved may have well met that threshold, but people who are around them, who are aware of the uh, behavior, didn't, didn't stand up and say, you know what, this guy needs, somebody needs to look at this guy before something bad happens. And afterwards, there's the guilt that goes along with that where people say it was only a matter of time. We hear that over and over again. Somebody should have done something. We're all somebody. I want to um, open this up so we're all talking on the same question. And I think I was going to, my idea was to do this by um, kind of posing, you know, this is, if this is a deadlock, what could sort of change the field? A variety of different things. And I'll just throw some, um, some different things at you. Uh, mental health was actually going to be the first one. I don't, I don't know if, you know, Robin, thoughts on, on, on that subject, if there's, you know, the, if they're particularly at the federal level where, you know, everything is so fraud, if, you, if we're likely to see sort of change progress in the way, you know, California has sort of broadly, more broadly defined um, who's mentally ill for the purposes of not being able to get a gun. Do you see that happening federally? Or is, it the, or is this just one of these questions that ends with the NRA? You know, end of answer. Well, a couple of things. One is that we've been very careful to not broadly say mentally ill and to very consciously say dangerously mentally ill mm -hmm. because a very small portion of people who suffer from mental illness are actually a danger. And I think making that distinction is really important that we don't overstigmatize mental illness and get mm -hmm. a lot of pushback from that community that has won very hard-won victories mm -hmm. in protecting uh, people with mental illness. So I think that's one piece of it, is we're trying to be really conscious of how we even frame that conversation. Um, yes, the NRA. The NRA pretty much, uh, I've seen interviews with Wayne LaPierre and others where they say, well, would you support this and would you support that and he, there's literally nothing that they will get behind on any level, including anything to do with mental health. But I actually think that of all the issues on the table right now, um, improving background checks for mental health and maybe improving some mental health services, particularly for those with dangerous mental illness, 
does have potential at the federal level because it is enough of a, a almost a separate area where you avoid some of the, the gun contentiousness and you get into almost a different area. Um, there, was a, there was a big federal bill passed in 2007 called the Nix Improvement Act. Nix is the national instant background check system that's used for um, gun, for doing gun background checks. And the Nix Improvement Act was meant to um, incentivize states putting records into the system. It's one of the big gaps that we have in background checks. Uh, it hasn't, it's been very effective in some states it, because it's voluntary, because our 10th Amendment doesn't let us enforce it on the states. It hasn't been effective across the board. But I do think there's opportunities for improving the background check system in the mental health arena at the federal level um, on a variety of, in a variety of ways. And I think you might see some progress there. It, it's pretty deadlocked in D.C. right mm. now, but, um, mm. but it's close. I mean, the background check bill that was voted on in the Senate got 56 votes. So really 55, but it got, it was close. I mean, since when does more than a majority vote not mean the bill passes? But with our current filibuster rules, we have this really messed up system where actually a, the bill should have passed and it didn't because of that. So we're, we're more than close. We're beyond there. It's just not working within our broken system. Let me ask a different, about a different um, uh, D.C.-based institution, the United States Supreme Court. Um, you know, the Heller decision in 2008, District of Columbia versus Heller, the court struck down Washington, D.C.'s very old ban on handgun possession, the requirement that firearms in the home be stored, unloaded, and disassembled or bound by locking device. Do you have any concern? What's your level of concern? It's coming from your perspective that that um, decision will, you know, as applied to future cases, um, that, that there's a court majority there that would strike down a lot of uh, these things that you consider progress. Second Amendment doesn't, you know, doesn't doesn't have any exceptions for for the mentally ill, right? Uh, Jody and I had a good almost debate about this before we came in here, and my guess is he might take a slightly different approach to it. In, in my opinion, the Heller decision was incredibly narrowly written, intentionally so. Uh, Scalia, who wrote the decision, could have made it a lot broader, and he kept the decision limited to guns in the home for self-defense. Um, he talked in the decision about the presumptive constitutionality of a variety of restrictions, including particularly dangerous weapons, sensitive places, keeping guns out of the hands of certain classes of people. So in my mind, he was really trying not to upset the apple cart too much. The second part of your question, which is, well, what's next? The Supreme Court has, has denied cert on dozens of cases that have been appealed since Heller. So since the Heller decision, as we predicted, um, almost hundreds of cases have been filed across the country challenging gun regulations. This was a new right. 2008, before 2008, you did not have an individual right to own a gun. Even though the NRA lopped off the first half of the Second Amendment about a well-regulated militia and made us all believe it was the right of the people, before 2008, the Supreme Court had never said that. They'd only said it's a militia-related right whenever they talked about the Second Amendment. But over time and with a lot of good scholarship, or at least, you know, I wouldn't say good, but prominent scholarship, um, they, they shifted what was believed about the Second Amendment and, and the culture changed in a lot of ways. So now you have this new right. And so dozens and dozens, hundreds of lawsuits are filed challenging gun regulations all over the country. Everything from restrictive concealed carrying systems, assault weapon bans, age restrictions, you name it. And it's being challenged in, in courts across the country. And with a few outliers, 
almost without fail, courts are upholding existing gun regulations. They're not striking them down on Second Amendment grounds, even post-Heller. And those decisions, as they've wound through appellate courts, are being appealed to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is having opportunities put before it to expand that very limited right it articulated in Heller. And they are declining to do so. Now, why? I would argue, um, and this is absolutely my opinion based on nothing but you know, my observation, that there aren't the votes to expand the right beyond what Heller defined. And so because the conservative majority doesn't have whoever it is that is that swing, I have my guess, and I'm guessing Jody would probably agree, but, um, but they're not taking that case because they can't end it the way they want, and so they're just declining cert. And that's been pretty, um, pretty much unanimous since, since Heller. So they don't have the votes, and so we're stuck with this very, very narrow right. One of the things I always talk about on this issue is don't be afraid of the Second Amendment on this issue. The other side will throw it in your face first. The second you want to talk about gun safety, gun regulation, what can we do about this problem, they throw the Second Amendment at you. But it doesn't necessarily, just because they think and say it provides this really encompassing right, they are not the ones who get to decide what that right is. The Supreme Court is. Mm -hmm. And up until now, at least, the Supreme Court has not said it gives you a right to have an assault weapon, it gives you a right to carry your gun into a church or into a bar, you know, that you can have a gun when you're 18. Those are not things that the Supreme Court has said the Second Amendment provides for you. And the appellate courts have said you don't, that is not what is protected by the Second Amendment. So as of this moment, at least, there is no obstacle presented by the Second Amendment. I'm curious. Do you want to add anything? No, no, it's just a little tricky and complicated in that, you know, I I remember a tradition in which um, activists who were concerned about government oppression, the Leviathan state, those sort of things, picked up firearms to express that concern. They were called the Black Panthers, right? And they, they, they started saying, we are concerned. We, we, we want the Second Amendment to help us regulate the police who they felt were being oppressive in their community, right? And that's when, with my tongue only partially in my cheek, I think if you want to really achieve a lot of gun control legislation in California, <laughs> Go back, you know, um, rearm, bring back the Black Panthers. Okay, bring back the Black Panthers, right? That's when Ronald Reagan signed off the, 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 the Mulford bill, right? Mm-hmm. The Mulford Act, right? He signed mm-hmm. off. He said you should, he had a lot of compelling reasons then, you know, in terms of public safety for, for um, black folk not walking around with guns and regulating the regulators. So, you know, I... And especially at a time when, you know, the U.S. government isn't making a lot of friends with people who care about the Constitution, you know, the Fourth Amendment, say, and Snowden, and some First Amendment things, and the Fourth Amendment, and, you know, you don't need a whole lot of probable cause anymore, they say, and what happened to Miranda rights, and, you know, a lot of things. It, It looks like... I can see why some folks, I'm just bringing the devil's advocate position in here a little bit, I can see why some folks might say, you know, I'm a little concerned about jealously protecting some of these constitutional rights. But with some of this, you'd write, you need a digital gun so that when they come for your metadata, you're, you know, you're ready to defend yourself, right? Um, 
Um, let, let me bring Jim back in the conversation here mm -hmm. on, on the question of data, um, a very fraught subject in this mm -hmm. area because of the federal the ban on federal funding, which is now 17 years old. You, you are um, sometimes represented, um, perhaps incorrectly, as being having been part of a, a data-obsessed leadership at the LAPD mm -hmm. when you were there. And, I, and I'm curious about... Um, you know, data, how you see that, do you feel like there's enough data there on gun violence for you to do what you need to do? Do you know enough, both big picture and, you know, at the very local level? I think at the local level, <clears throat> you know, as far as uh, doing the job we've done uh, in reducing crime, I think we've, we've uh, that obsession with data has worked to our advantage with limited resources. We've tried as best we can to be as strategic as we can using those limited resources of the, at the day of the week, the time of the day, and so forth, to be able to, to prevent crime. Uh, and we've seen pretty good results for that. When you look at uh, the, the management of data and, and uh, you know, big data, how do you, how do you control that? How do you, how do you use it wisely? Uh, that's, that's always a challenge. And the, and the, and the, uh, the trade-off between privacy and security certainly is something on the macro level that our government is dealing with. Um, you know, I think we all rightfully have concerns over how far that goes. Uh, at the local level, I feel pretty comfortable where we are today uh, relative to using the data we have available to us uh, that it's being done in a responsible manner. That's something we need to watch all the time and we need to be very cognizant of, of that fine line in, in crossing over. But uh, in an effort to be able to, to maintain the levels of safety we have today, we're using the tools that are available to us out there. I, I wondered, Robin and Jody, on a similar question, um, you know, you, you, there have been some documentation. There are fewer people doing, you know, work research on guns because there's less money out there. Um, is it? Can you point to things that we should know or we'd like to know about guns and gun violence that we don't know because of, you know, the difficulties of getting funding for for research in this area? There's so much. I would. I honestly don't even know where to begin. I mean, there's a few examples. <laughs> I, you know, there, there's policy. When you when you look at gun violence, it really falls into different buckets. There's homicide, and and I think Jody referred to every two weeks. There's a new town. There's actually 250 people shot every single day in America, mm -hmm. and 82 of those people die. So there's 82 deaths every single day. 33 homicides. That's a new town every single day. Not all of them are in our urban centers, but that's, that's happening day in, day out. That was, I think, really well, well put. Um, but, but so you have homicides and you have suicides and you have unintentional or accidental deaths. And those different types of gun injury and gun death are very, very different when you look at them from a preventative policy perspective. How do we prevent that type of gun death from, from occurring? Um, so for me, the question is always, well, if you're talking about an ordinance that requires gun owners to be more responsible, to report lost and stolen guns, or to get licenses and know how to use them, what, what aspect of the problem does that lend itself to? Well, it could be about, uh, you know, we talked about how a lot of crime guns are stolen guns. So that is a tool for law enforcement. It also changes behaviors, which helps people store their guns more safely, prevents uh, children from getting a hold of them. So there's all of these pieces, but to know which of those policies works best to actually prevent a particular type of injury, we need to know more. We need to know mm -hmm. if people lock their guns up, does that reduce accidental deaths? Does it reduce suicides? Does it disincentivize thefts? And so you have less illegal gun trafficking, you know, uh, background checks. What does that 
do with regard to the flow of guns into different communities, what types of guns. So we need research on all of it. We need to know, you know, how background checks and banning certain types of weapons and, you know, licensing. And I know registration in most, within this debate, registration tends to be the hottest button word because you have this idea registration mm -hmm. and confiscation can, can be uh, connected to each other. Interestingly, in case you aren't aware, we do have registration of all firearms now in California. Uh, it used to be just handguns, but as of 2014, it's gonna, it was a bill the governor just signed. Mm -hmm. It'll be long guns also. So we have total registration of all firearms here. Um, I don't notice anything being confiscated other than from those people who shouldn't have them. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to know more. We need to know how that I increases people's sense of responsibility and, and how they then manage firearms better and, and what types of injury that prevents. We have very, very little, Joe. We have almost no research. There's a little bit coming out of Hopkins and Harvard, which are privately funded. The government's doing no research, and there's not a lot of private money either. Here's what else we know, though, for sure, too. We know that the violence from guns started spiking with the advent of the crack plague, 83, 84. Okay, it started going through the roof, right? You can, uh, LA Times mm -hmm. has some great graphs on this, et cetera, recently, right? So we know that poor people are disproportionately ones turning to gun violence, right? And we know that minorities, socially marginalized minorities, blacks, poor, when you put black and poor together in the inner city, you have a lot of gun violence. Um, and th those are just the facts. And we know that, you know, over the last 30 years with prohibition on, you know, and, and our efforts, what, what you might want to call prohibition, our mm -hmm. drug policy, you know, has, has failed miserably in, in terms of reducing either the uh, supply of drugs or the number of deaths often associated with drugs. So we, w what that tells us, though, when we know all of those things is race, place, class, and crime are intertwined. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you have kids trapped in high crime neighborhoods, they're more likely 10 to 19 to wind up gun violence victims. So if we want to do something about reducing that rate, that rate of victimization from guns, which is, like you said, the, you know, really the Antarctic, the, the tip of the iceberg or the, or the rampage shootings, unfortunately, the Antarctica of deaths from guns are really, you know, the everyday kinds of things to get at that. We're going to have to have some tough conversations that I don't know we're willing to have about employment, making sure that there's better employment, that you don't have crumbling schools like Crenshaw High losing its accreditation 2005, 2006. You played by all the rules, and now your, your diplomas were toilet tissue in the admissions process. I might turn to a gun, too, if, I, if this cruel hoax exposed itself to me, right? So employment, you know, um, economic inequality, handling those kind of issues are much tougher to handle than let's work on clip sizes and background checks. Mm -hmm. But that's where we're really going to have to go to, to, to address that, that part of the problem. I want to ask about two other areas, possibility, things that could move things before we go to, to questions. Um, one is um, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when I read East Coast magazines, I begin to think that all social problems will be ultimately solved by Bloomberg <laughs> billions. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't ask a police chief about, a may about mayors. I know that can be always a dangerous uh, mm -hmm. bit of territory. <laughs> but, um, you know, he's got mayors against illegal guns. He's playing in a lot of areas, policy and politics. I wonder if you or others have an assessment of the likeliness of this, you know, how strong a force this is, since he's playing all over the country and seems mm -hmm. to have a bottomless pit of money to 
sort of change the politics and the, the policy calculation. Yeah, I think both his position as mayor of the biggest city in America and the money that he has to be able to support that give him a, a bully pulpit that few others could have. And by bringing in mayors from other cities throughout America who've experienced uh, significant violent crime issues for many years, uh, that's a strong voice. Now, whether that voice is enough to be able to be sustainable and whether it's uh, enough to be able to overcome uh, the money being spent by other, other factions, uh, is, it remains to be seen. But I think what it does is create a dialogue that we otherwise might not have. And I think for, for all of us as Americans, that's a good dialogue to have. Um, well, on another subject, um, and that is, you know, if we're, as we're more connected globally, um, the Americans, there's some suggestion, again, there's not a lot of study and survey, Americans are more aware of what's going on in the rest of the world. And we're such a global outlier, you know, when on some of these, uh, you know, gun violence statistics, gun ownership, um, you know, uh, the firearm, you know, WHO says the firearm fatality rate in the United States is almost 20 times higher than that of other high-income nations with population mm -hmm. over 1 million. Um, some say that a third of the world's guns are in private hands in the United States. Um, and, you know, there was a... Uh, you know, Oscar, uh, Oscar Arias Sanchez, the former president of Costa Rica, Nobel laureate, had a piece not long ago in the New York Times sort of going after the NRA for, for fighting a, a, against a, an international arms treaty that's, that's uh, before the Senate now. And, and I sort of wonder about the, the global impact of this debate. It's been an issue in our relations with Mexico. Um, does anyone see that as having an impact on, on, on this debate, that this, this debate gets globalized? We, you know, in, in healthcare, one of the stronger arguments for, for changing our healthcare system was that we were sort of an outlier in how we did healthcare. You know, we, we spent a lot more money than everyone else and the outcomes weren't much different. You know, they said that one of the reasons we had real um, progress in race relations in the 60s is because, and in the late 50s is because it, it was good foreign relations. It made us look bad when we were, you know, um, trumpeting the virtues of the American way when you had a, lot, a big group of people over here on the news constantly being discriminated against and hosed and dogged, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that prompted change through concern about our international image. So maybe, maybe, hopefully, you know, the bloodshed that, you know, when I'm over in Poland speaking, they're watching MTV. Mm -hmm. they're, wa they're, they're, they're tuned into American TV. Maybe, you know, we can get shamed into doing something about the carnage in our streets just in terms of our our image in the international eye mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of trying to promote our brand as superior. Well, if our brand is superior, how can we have all this carnage in the street? Right? The American way is all that. And I think it's all that. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> you know, my dad's a proud Marine, but, you know, um, that, that, I don't know. Maybe that'll help, but otherwise it's, it's, it's a tough nut. I think Obama cares about that. I mean, my sense is when he's talking to the president of Mexico or of other countries, he wants this trade treaty to pass. So I, I do think Obama wants that. And I think the American people want that. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, going back to what I said earlier, 90% of the American people support, and I'm just using this policy as our example of the moment, even though I want to continue to acknowledge it's, it's, very, it's a very small piece of the problem, this universal background checks bill, 90% of Americans support it and it can't get, and Obama supports it. 
and it can't get through Congress. To me, the embarrassment is partially the horrific bloodshed, and it's partially how pathetically broken our government must appear to people. 90% of Americans support it, and it can't get through government. Well, who do they represent then? Well, clearly, they represent small money special interests. And at some point, that becomes, to me at least, such an embarrassment that we haven't found a way to help get our government to represent all of us. But back to Bloomberg, yeah. the question is votes too. I mean, mm. yes, there's money in politics, but part of the problem on guns is that yes, 90% of Americans support it, but is that the way they vote? Are they gonna vote for this guy over that guy because of how that person voted on the gun legislation? And usually the answer is no. They might vote economic issues or they might vote some other social policy, but they're not gonna vote a they're not going to vote for a person because of how they stood on guns. Bloomberg's trying to change that. He's trying to flesh out how much money these politicians are getting from the NRA. What is the perspective of constituents? And break that apathy loose. You talked about what's it going to take to break the logjam. Part of what I see is you need to break that apathy. You need people, that 90%, to speak up a little louder, to show up. When I go testify at a hearing on gun legislation, even in California, I'm outnumbered 10 to 1 by gun rights advocates because they show up. When there is a bill in their local town hall, they are going to be there. And that is not the case for the 90% of us who support the legislation. So how do we do that? This is not my particular expertise, but I wish that was something we knew how to solve for. If I, yeah, please. I'm sorry. If yeah. I could just, uh, I think a piece that we haven't talked about here really today is you get more of what you celebrate and what you reward. And you look at our kids growing up today, and what are they exposed to? The entertainment that they're given at video games, movies, TV shows. The popular media celebrates violence, celebrates to some degree in some segments the gang lifestyle. It celebrates things that we as Americans shouldn't be celebrating. And I think that here we are in the media capital of the world, that if we have an opportunity to do anything, it's to try and uh, reshape that conversation moving forward as to what as a country do we want to celebrate? Because the rest of the world, uh, while they, they're looking at us and, and critical of us in many ways, rightfully so, that the message that we're communicating to the rest of the world is not the one that we as Americans necessarily need to be proud of. We're gonna go right to questions, but I wanna ask one tiny thing that Robin's answer inspired me. Doesn't Obamacare have gun provisions? Limits on what health workers or wellness people can tell people on guns? Sort of, but it's being debated. It does have a provision in it which limits the way in which um, questions can be asked about gun ownership. And data collected and go yeah. to your well, health insurance company. Yeah, but actually Florida, they passed a law which prohibited doctors from asking about guns and a court struck that down as a violation of First Amendment rights. So I think if you really push the envelope on what doctors can and can't talk to patients about, you will see the courts step in if you legislate that. Hi, my name is Paul Grisani. I have a couple of questions, unfortunately, but I'm only allowed one. <laughs> so why isn't there an NRA representative on the podium? It's supposed to be a debate. Well, no, actually, Zocalo is not a debate. Um, we, we don't do debates. Um, we, do, we do conversations in which you learn different things. But, um, um, but, um, but we're not curators of debates in any way, shape, or form. That's not been our, that's not been our perspective, no. My question, why, the statement I would like for each one of you is, we have 350 million people in this country. We're losing 30,000 people a year. 20,000 to suicide, over 20 people from the military killing themselves. 
I don't think it makes a difference. I think you could double the number of guns in this country. The comment I want is you're fighting against guns. I think you're fighting a losing fight. Do you, do you guys have some comments on that? You can start. I, uh, I'll start. Uh, from my perspective, we're not fighting against guns. We're fighting against violence. Uh, and that's where our focus is uh, in, the, in the inner city, certainly, uh, in an effort to try and stem that. The, the guns that we're talking about here, whether it's from our perspective, whether it's prohibited possessors or crime guns, uh, they're the instrumentality of, of the violent crime that we're dealing with. Uh, our perspective is not to go out and, and take guns off the street. It's to take crime guns and guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them by law. Um, I would just add to that by saying um, that you, there's other countries that have really high gun ownership rates but have a significantly more stringent system for training, for licensing people so they know how to safely use guns. They have registration of those guns. In Israel, every gun has technology which stamps any bullet from the gun uh, so you know who that gun is registered to, where the bullet came from. So you have a lot of gun ownership, but not in, and Canada as well has really high gun ownership, but not the kind of gun violence problem we have. So what I look at sometimes on this issue is we do have a Second Amendment. I'm, whether I agree or disagree with, this, with the Supreme Court's decision in Heller, it is the law of the land. And unless it gets overturned, that is what we're dealing with. So you do have now an individual right to a gun in your home. And you're right, we have hundreds of millions of guns. What can we do to make it safer so that we can have those guns but not have the levels of violence. Mm -hmm. Can we get guns out of the wrong hands? Can we encourage gun owners to behave more responsibly and safely as they do in countries with high gun ownership and lower gun death rates? Can we pr prevent the almost a 1,000 injuries to children under the age of 15 every year, which are mostly accidental injuries? Are there things we can do to prevent some of these injuries? and deaths, I believe that we can, the same way we have with car injuries and car deaths, by improving car safety, road safety, driver responsibility, uh, high, dealing with high-risk behaviors like drunk driving. There's, there's, we're an intelligent country. We're a problem-solving nation when we want to be. So if we want to look at this issue and say, what are the solutions to the problem, there are ways that we can agree on. It's just a question of whether there's the will to actually you know, implement those approaches. Yeah, I'm certainly not against gun ownership per se. I, I hope nothing I've said has conveyed that message. If anything, to the contrary, like with my Black, Panth Black Panthers ex uh, example, I support um, uh, certain kinds of uh, free expression uses of the gun, for example, and protection of rights, et cetera. Um, I, I'm, I'm most concerned with reducing the violence and death from guns. Now that's my main concern, the human toll that guns take. And that is consistent with a whole lot of different regimes in terms of gun ownership and regulation, you know. But at the end of the day, um, I know that there's some things that are going to increase some risk, like putting social stereotypes and guns together and creating George Zimmerman and Trayvon kinds of issues. But putting that to the side um, for a moment, um, like you said, there are countries like Canada and other countries that have as a lot of gun ownership, a whole lot of gun ownership, and, not, not, and nothing like our, our, our problem with gun violence. So maybe that's what we need to be working on, you know, would be my take. Not, so I'm, I'm, I'm with whatever will work. I'm kind of very pragmatic about this. Um, but I am concerned about the Second Amendment. You know, I really, I do kind of feel that the, the tug, and I know it's up for interpretation, but... 
I, I'll be honest, I, 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 LeBron James' basketball season is starting. He talked about he grew up in the inner city of Akron, Ohio, so so did I. ABC took me out, basketball took him out of the, of, of the ghetto of, of Ohio. I, had, I brushed my teeth and sat at breakfast with a gun because we were in the highest crime neighborhood in Akron. You, we, we, you know, there were 12-year-old prostitutes within 50 yards of where we were. There was a homeless shelter, everything else. And I, had, I, I gained reassurance from that high crime area having that gun as an 11 and 12-year-old. So I'm not coming from an anti-gun position. I'm trying to come from a smart on reducing violence and, and unnecessary deaths kind of position. I think we all are, really. My name is Jerry Rubin with a group called the Alliance for Survival based right here in Santa Monica. And the police chief said it very appropriately. We need to pay more attention to the violent entertainment, the violent video games. But one thing hasn't been addressed today. The concern still about realistic looking toy guns. There was another teenager that was killed accidentally and we were involved with the banning of those toy guns, but a little red tip seems inadequate. And with the uh, computer and the uh, websites, it's easy to violate that restriction. So what can be done to prevent the escalation of these dangerous, realistic-looking toy guns? And I ask that of the chief and all the other panelists as well. That was a tragic incident last week uh, where uh uh, I believe it was a 13-year-old kid was killed uh, while holding a, uh, a re very realistic-looking toy gun. Um, there's been efforts in the past to paint with neon paint uh, the tips or parts of guns, and what we see then as a response to that, and you can find it on the Internet, are very real guns that are painted the same way or painted outlandish-looking colors, so they look very fake, but they are very real guns that can, can kill you. Um, so it's almost whatever step you take, you know, there's someone else taking a counter step to that. So we continue to struggle with that issue. Uh, officers in the field who respond have to respond with, let's make things safe first. And if somebody points what appears to be a weapon at them, the, the outcome is, is tragic. Uh, and, and particularly tragic when it's a young person like that. Uh, so we continue, to, we continue to wrestle with that. The officers in the field deal with these issues every single day. And uh, it's, it's a very tough situation with no easy answers. And one response I'll make super quick is, as a, as a lawyer, I have to talk about tort litigation. I think a few suits against a couple of, couple of these companies on negligence grounds, I think you'll get some sympathetic juries looking at these cases. But aren't, are, isn't that, that, that does a big question. Isn't, you know, you know, I remember when I was the Wall Street Journal reporter on this, that was the story in the 90s of litigation against gun companies. But hasn't a lot of that been... Uh, that litigation been essentially stopped in its tracks by federal prohibition on some of the litigation, some state prohibition. There's actually an immunity law passed in 2005, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms <coughs> Act with George Bush signed. And what that does is immunizes gun manufacturers and most gun dealers from all civil liability, minus some very willfully uh, willful negligence. So there is almost complete immunity from civil lawsuits, which is often a very interesting backdoor way that you get changing behaviors from an industry, you know, and particularly because the gun industry is also immune from the Consumer Protection Act. It's the only industry in America. It used to be guns and tobacco, but tobacco is now subject to the CPA, so only guns are immune from the Consumer Protection Act, which means you can have unsafe guns where you, you know, drop them and they go off or they're defective. You can't, you can't 
bring, there's no control by the government over that. And then now you also have complete civil liability under the PLCC. So, you know, you, you have this incredibly <laughs> vibrant protection of the gun manufacturers and the gun industry, again, signed by George Bush in 05, which takes away some of these, um, some of these opportunities to, to create responsibility in, in a way that we do with other industries. And it, you know, again, overturning the laws be the only way to See, now, that. And that would certainly cover the guns. It, it, in terms of Not addressing toys, his concern, though, though the toys, no. it doesn't do anything for the toys. Bring a negligence action yeah. against the toy manufacturers That's for different. manufacturing guns that are rife with peril. Mm. For kid and officer alike. Yeah, toy, we're talking about toys. We're not talking about real guns. So it's not falling under that rubric at all. That's right. I've heard a lot of interesting things here. I mean, we all have. But there have been many discussions on this topic for a while now. And they seem not to change despite, you know, another rampage of violence or just the numbers we see everywhere. So given the fact that the title uh, of this evening was uh, how do we break the deadlock in the gun debate I was wondering if people had any thoughts about how to do that it is starting to break I, I think I think that there's been as I said said initially I think there's been a shift um, I know Bloomberg is a very controversial figure in a lot of ways and I'm not, by no means saying he's you know the answer to the world's problems but or this country's problems at least but he is providing a counterbalance to the NRA's money in Washington. For the last 30 or 40 years, the NRA has really been the only um, person putting money into this issue. So there was a political cost for any legislator who voted for gun control laws, and there was no upside. And Bloomberg's, he's not balancing. The NRA has about a $250 million a year budget. He's not putting that much money into this issue where he's actually balancing that. But he is at least bringing a countervoice. At least there is some upside for courageous legislators who, who vote for this stuff and the NRA goes after them, at least they have someone to turn to who, who has some money to, to get their back. And he's also trying to mobilize this sort of vast apathetic majority of people by creating more of a membership drive and, and getting people energized. So, you know, he can't do it alone. I, I particularly also really like what Gabrielle Gifford's organization is doing. I think there's, there's needing to be a, a countervailing force so that then politicians aren't swayed only by having the weight be on one side. Because if there's weight on both sides, then at least some of them can vote their conscience without worrying about the impact of that money or votes. With my political reporter hat on, I, I almost want to ask on this, to, 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 to expand on that question, is, is this an issue that changes with demographics over time? I mean, there are fewer people you know, relative to the whole of the population in places, the places in the United States where gun ownership has traditionally been highest, right? Um, there are um, uh, some statistics, again, statistics are not always, not always a lot in this area, suggest that, well, there's still, you know, 300 million or so guns out there in the country. Um, the rate of gun ownership amongst the population seems to be falling. It's more concentrated in a smaller number of people. Um, do those changes? sort of change this over time, or is this a different issue politically than, you know, you could say you know, demographics may change the immigration debate over time, but, or is this a different issue because it, um, it divides that sort of Democratic Obama coalition in, in many ways? I don't know if you have thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it's, it's a different issue in this respect. It goes up and down and waxes and wanes in terms of how many people own guns, perhaps. But I think fear 
you know, is also something that gun purchasing is a function of. And you know what else they uh, really increased gun purchase and ownership over the last, oh, five years? A black president. Obama apparently has done a lot for, <laughs> no, no, they, they'll tell you, retailers, gun retailers love the Obama presidency, you know? So there are all of these kinds of, you know, these variables out here that I'm just not sure if it's going to continue to go down. I hope, you know, in some ways that we would start, we would stop feeling so fearful that we need guns for to protect ourselves and maybe have guns for hunting or guns for other things, which I support, or guns, you know, just to have in the home or what have you. But um, I'm just not sure that it's, 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 it's in a steady state down, but we'll see. I think it was also fear of gun, oh, that Obama was going to implement gun regulation that, that mm. drove some of those increased sales. <coughs> Um, but but that's right, what you were saying about decreased overall ownership used to be at about 50% in the 50s and 60s. It's now at about 30% of homes. Even though we have more guns, there's less homes with guns, which, um, again, has led to the development of some of these more lethal weapons because it's more sales for the gun industry because um, they have less hands, so they need to make more interesting weapons for those people who do want to buy and own the most lethal weapons that civilians can own, and that's that's been sort of proven in some of the... Um, some of the studies. So I think it's a really, it's a, it's a, that's a tough question because it's, it is gone consistently down, but it, it's still more and more guns in general, which I think has got risks. If I could just, uh, yeah. I, I think a thought on the fear factor that, that was mentioned. When you look at where we are today in Southern California, and I'll use my own city, Long Beach, as an example of that, we finished out 2012 with the lowest violent crime rates in 40 years. We're down 15.8% this year from last year. So we're in a very good place. But if you ask the average person on the street, what is your perception of crime, it's high. I think a lot of that is that we have such easy access to news. When something bad happens, it's a big story and you get it. You get it on your, you get, get it on your iPhone. You'll get it on any kind of device you have. You'll get it again if you're watching TV. They'll break in on the TV. So we're so subject to, so, to information and news from so many different sources instantaneously, and you get that news over and over again. Subconsciously in your head, you're thinking, wow, it's, it's violent out there because I keep hearing these stories over and over. So I think we need to take a deep breath, take a step back, and to some degree celebrate where we are today and then build on that. We're at a good time to be able to move forward with, with some, some innovative thinking when things are good. Things are good right now when you look at, in our own lifetimes here, uh, where we are relative to the crime picture. So it's always the fault of us journalists, huh? We are. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carol Sevilla, uh, given the statistics that you spoke of tonight about how disproportionately large the proponents for gun control are, hypothetically, what do you think would happen if large numbers, I mean really large numbers of advocates for stricter controls all without guns, all join the NRA? I think it would be very interesting. Um, I've had it suggested to me at times, why not do that? And I've said, absolutely, you should do that. I, they don't, you know, they're not, I'm not their favorite person. So I think I'll stay away from the NRA conventions. But you know, when they poll NRA members, right, not the leadership, not the lobbyists, but the members, 75% of NRA members support universal background checks. But then Wayne LaPierre gets in front of Senate and the Senate and argues against it. Now, he purports to represent 4 million gun owners that are NRA members, but the members themselves 
actually are okay with background checks. They don't think that that's a problem for law-abiding gun owners. But the NRA doesn't just represent gun owners. They represent gun owners, and they also represent gun manufacturers in the industry. And so they're in a tough, the, the leadership, the lobbyists are in this tough position. And I think that if the members of the NRA, even existing members, never mind all of you know, those people who support gun regulations joined the NRA, even if members themselves were engaged enough to, to worry about it and want to change it, they could. But it's not kind of how the organization operates. But isn't, I mean, the way American politics, two-party politics works, isn't that, aren't they wise? I mean, the, the NRA folks, I mean, you get a lot by being the holdout, by, by, by taking the hard stance in the poll. Ultimately, you know, you, know you, can, you can sort of, you may make a better compromise if there's compromise. And there certainly have been, you know, there have been, you know, gun, you know, some gun laws since, uh, since 1978 when the NRA kind of, the current sort of leadership folks kind of took over in a similar way, in the opposite way in which you right. suggested. But isn't, I mean, there's also, and then if you, you know, if you, if things don't fall out, you're in, you know, come together and compromise, you're still in a strong position to say, we didn't give in, we're, we're still fighting, and that helps things like fundraising. I mean, isn't that, aren't they playing the game the way it's meant to be played in the system we have? Yes, they are. Don't hate the player, hate the game. I mean, even money in politics and the <laughs> way that they are, leveraging the money that they have in politics is the system we've set up. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, they, they are working the system, whether it's their uncompromising position or their way of leveraging money. Um, it's, it's up to us to speak a different language and bring a different, a different story to Washington and to the public. But I like this idea a lot. You know, it reminds me of how you do things. You roll judo-wise with the momentum that they already have. You know, join the organization, say we're going to make democracy work for us. We're going to make power accountable to those who are affected by its exercise, the way that some people have suggested, for example, that board, that board rooms should be run, corporate board rooms, that you should have representation from the environmentalist groups and labor sitting on the board. So you extend democracy into the economy through the boardroom and requiring representation. Well, have more folks who are more moderate, perhaps, join the NRA and have your voice heard through the democratic process. You know, make power accountable to those affected by its exercise. Do you want to get on this? No, I think that's pretty much <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it there. Join me in thanking the panel. Thank you.